Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. I'm going to share a little bit of a testimony, healing testimony with you, uh, and then we're going to sing that again. And I'll tell you why here in a minute. Uh, Many of you have heard, most of you have heard, uh, how years ago I experienced uh, absolutely a miraculous, sudden healing of my back. It was not as early as I wanted it to be, but when it happened, it happened all at once. You remember that story, and if you don't, if you're not familiar with it, I'm not going to share it with you again, but it was one of the... uh, Uh, one of the most powerful manifestations of God's power that I've experienced in my life. And I shared uh, sometime last year, I had woken up with some strange pain in my leg. It was very, very painful. And uh, as I was walking down the stairs, I almost heard a pop and all the pain disappeared. This was after I spoke the word. That was the same day I started feeling the pain. I experienced the healing. Then I also shared with you, I think, uh, uh, sometime in the last couple months, how I had fallen. Uh, It was really... Abigail Kreider's fault, but I'm not going to really blame her. Uh, During the Christmas party, I'd fallen on my knee, and it began to really hurt. Kip Beatty prayed for me on the spot, and I experienced instant relief. But then by the time I got home, I felt like my bottom leg was becoming separated from my upper leg. And it, it didn't look bad, but it felt like a basketball. And Beth prayed for me, and I spoke the word, but I, it felt so bad that I thought, this has got to get better in a hurry, or I'm going to have to go to the hospital. And I'm not opposed to going to the hospital. I'm not opposed to seeing the doctor. I just didn't want to. So I went to sleep speaking the word, and I got up the next morning. It hurt, but I walked around the living room speaking the word, speaking the word, and it was strong. It wasn't pain-free, but it was strong enough where I could walk where I couldn't the night before, and I just praised God. It kept getting better little by little, getting stronger and stronger. Now, this is Christmas. It's, it's what, what month are we in now? We're in April, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's still not 100% strong. But here's the, here's the thing I wanted to share with you. Uh, over the course of the last month and a half, maybe two months, uh, there developed below my knee, a couple inches below my knee, a very significant uh, bump or cyst or something. It was gross. Uh, this is how Rainy described it. I go up there several times a week, and I wake up Rainy by singing uh, and playing the guitar for her. And she just loves that, especially my voice. No, she especially loves me not singing, but she likes me waking up with the guitar. So I'm sitting there with my one leg over the other, and she can see this protrusion through my pajamas. And she's like, oh, what is wrong with your leg? That is so gross. And it was gross. Uh, we were in Branson last week, and I was very self-conscious the one time I wore shorts, which was at the pool, because it's not the kind of thing you have to look for. It's the kind of thing that frightens children. And, uh, and I was thinking, but it's not like it caused a great deal of pain. It just was really disturbing looking. So I've been speaking to this thing. I've had the guys at men's prayer on Saturday morning pray for me, and I've continued to speak to this thing. But I had this moment uh, early in the morning last week, as a matter of fact, while we're in Branson, uh, while I'm looking at that, and I'm just kind of rubbing my hand over it, thinking, man, is this thing going to get better? And this voice, I mean, it was like, it's not some, something that I absolutely know, but I mean this knowing that God spoke to me in that moment, of course it's getting better. I love you. Like, whoa, wow, God loves you. 
what a, what a deep theological truth. But to hear God speak that to your heart, why wouldn't you get better? The God who created the stars, right? The God who spoke the universe into existence loves me and cares about this. And I've been speaking his word over it anyway. Yesterday, just yesterday, uh, playing with Beth's new dog, if you can call it a dog, little thing. No, it's cute. But I was messing with it, and I stood up, and I thought, that's weird. And this thing is gone. I mean, I woke, that's, listen, listen to me. It wasn't shrinking. It wasn't shrinking. I got up yesterday morning, and I'm not kidding. This thing, if you put a baseball inside my leg, it looked like about half a baseball sticking out. And that's what it looked like yesterday morning. And when I got up off the floor yesterday, it's gone. Gone, gone. I said, look at this, Beth, look at this, look at this. And she's like, that's a miracle, baby. I, I love it when it happens like that. And that, that's a reminder. Now, again, I can still, if I twist it a certain way, I realize there's still some progress. How can I not believe that's going to be a completed work when I've seen so something visible, not just the way it feels, but when something visible disappears like that? And that, again, I was going to try to find a way to shoehorn that into my message, but singing this song, and when we sing that, it's, these are important truths. Man, he saved me, right? Put my feet on solid ground. But you know what else he did? He healed me to the uttermost. Say, well, he hasn't healed me yet. Uh, when did he heal me? Yesterday? No. When did he heal my back? Several years ago? No. He did that when he saved me 2,000 years ago. He purchased my healing when he purchased my salvation. Same with you. He has healed you, whether you have walked in the full manifestation of that or not. So what I want to do is just sing that again. And when you get, if there's a sickness in your body, if there is a manifestation of something ugly in your bones, in your joints, just sing that from the bottom of your heart healed me to the uttermost and you receive that for yourself i'm going to stand up here while we sing and if you would like some just prayer of agreement i will lay hands on you i will pray with you i'm not going to la uh, labor over you in prayer i'll just grab your hand put my hand on your head or whatever and say i agree you are healed he has healed you uh, but if you want to just stand if you just want to remain seated uh, or remain at your seats and sing that again this wasn't this didn't happen to me yesterday in a meeting Nobody was laying hands on me in that moment. I had just been speaking the word in agreement with what he has done, with what he has spoken, with prayers that had already been prayed over me since December. Now, in the grand scheme of things, would I rather be giving this testimony in late December or January? Yeah, here it is, April, and it happened, and thank God, it's a testimony. I received that which God purchased for me all those years. So sing that from your heart. Receive your healing. If you want to, come up here and let me agree with you. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that where the gospel is preached, where the gospel is preached, the power of God is present to heal. Thank you for healing in Jesus' name.
Good morning, Living Word Family Church. Good to see so many of you here today, more and more. Uh, look forward to this place being filled to capacity, and I look really forward to the day when capacity means every seat filled, not just capacity uh, paying attention to social distancing, right? It's getting old. But praise God, we are here, and praise God, thank you for joining us at home or wherever you might be tuning in from. Can't stress it enough, nothing like being here in person. Uh, but we do thank you for tuning in. Pray that you are blessed. Next week is uh, David Beebe will be here. You do not want to miss that. He's a fantastic minister, wonderful minister. Well, a great man of God uh, with a long, uh, long history of service uh, in, in Rhema circles. Um, come, all, come prepared to be blessed and come prepared to be a blessing. Amen. That is where our mission offering is going uh, this month. Today, we are going to look again at the resurrection. I know uh, last week was Easter. Last week was Resurrection Sunday. And of course, we talked about the resurrection. But there are uh, other things to consider in this post-resurrection world we live in. And one of the first things I want to talk about is something that I have heard so much of and read so much of that sometimes I take for granted and assume that everybody has heard this stuff or read this stuff or knows this stuff, and probably many of you have. Uh, but you know, I love apologetics. I don't always go down that road. But in terms of apologetics, and by apologetics, of course, I mean the defense of the Christian faith, the resurrection is one of the most potent lines of argument, uh, proving the resurrection. Uh, uh, several people over the years have set out specifically to disprove the resurrection and in the process of researching it have come to faith in christ josh mcdowell famously went down that road years ago and then more recently lee strobel uh, has written a series of books the case for christ the case for the resurrection and so on um, it is amazingly well attested to documentary evidence historical evidence and i want to look briefly at some of the best evidences for the resurrection but first uh, a word or two about why it's important. Now, bear with me, please, because I know many of you have heard this story half a dozen times if you've heard it once, but there's always a handful of people who've never heard it, and it isn't a good way to set up uh, what comes next, and that is the story uh, of my, my experience with my religion class. I took a religion class at Parkland back in 83 or 4, and uh, it was Religion 101, so I thought it was going to be like Intro to World Religions. Shame on me for not reading a course description because it turned out to be a philosophy course on the nature of religious belief in general. And uh, the guy who taught the class, very well read and loved his subject and he loved taunting uh, uh, the students and, and just basically showing how, what a superior thinker he was. He's a very, very irritating guy. Uh, and yet he could be fun to talk to. Um, but... The premise of the class was that you can believe whatever you want to believe, but you, only, you have the moral obligation to be able to defend what you believe. You need to be able to say why you believe what you believe. So in that sense, it was a good, it was a, a, a good class, it was a challenge. But the final paper for that class was a paper called My Most Cherished Belief. Now, the professor and I had a number of back and forth, not all the time in class, but uh, he was broke most of the time, 
and would rather hitch a ride with me than take the bus. And so we would have these discussions as I drove him home from school. And we would get into it. It became very spirited sometimes. I could tell you stories about that that are kind of funny, but I'll, I'll save them uh, for some time when I'm just feeling mean. And, uh, but we were walking down the stairs uh, one day toward the end of this semester, and he says, have you thought about what you're going to write your paper on? And he knew by this point, he knew very well uh, that I was a Christian. And uh, I said, well, I think it would be obvious what I'm writing my paper on. And he said, well, obviously it's going to have something to do with Christianity, but you, you, know, you can't fit all of Christianity in a 12 or so page paper. You're going to have to narrow it down. I said, I know, I'm going to be writing about the resurrection. And he stopped in the middle of the stairs and said, oh, really? Why? And this is a guy that bragged, I can't tell you how much he bragged about how much he knew about, so many times he'd interrupt us and say, I, I know where you're going with this. I've been teaching this for 15 years. I, I know what you're about to say. And I said, how can you claim to know so much about Christianity and wonder why I'm going to write about the resurrection? I said, it's, it's the most important thing. It's the crux of Christianity, literally speaking. It is the, it is the sine qua non. And he said, I disagree. Why did Jesus have to rise from the dead for us to take his message of love and peace seriously? That I, never, I know I'm quoting him exactly. Why did Jesus have to rise from the dead for us to take his message of love and peace seriously? And we live in a world today, don't we, where many people admire the teachings of Jesus. They hold him up as a paragon of virtue, somebody worth emulating, but they don't even consider the possibility that he actually rose from the dead. There are movements, these societies, the historical Jesus Society, I don't know how active they still are, but they used to get together once a year and uh, stroke one another's egos and tell each other how smart they were while they went over the New Testament with a fine-tooth comb, the Gospels in particular, and decided which of the actual statements that Jesus made or descriptions of what Jesus did were most likely true. All right, so they redid all the red writing. This is a claim Jesus probably didn't make. This is a claim that Jesus certainly didn't make. This is one he probably did make. This is something he probably did do. And this is something he almost certainly did do or say. And they'd categorize it like that. But here's what, here's what the problem was. They, they began with this premise. Miracles are fake. Nobody ever has done such a thing as a miracle. Therefore, anything supernatural will just cross that out. Therefore, any claim Jesus made about the supernatural, they crossed it out. If Jesus said, I and the Father are one, probably not something Jesus said. And so on. Well, certainly then, they're going to cross out anything he said, and he said this more than once, didn't he? That the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men, he's going to be crucified, and three days later he's going to rise from the dead. He didn't say that. Because that's not good teaching. That's not something we can follow. It's a ridiculous premise. So, uh, so while some people will say, you don't have to believe all that supernatural stuff, especially the resurrection, uh, to believe in the wonderful teachings of Jesus, the only way you can arrive at that conclusion is to ignore a ton of what Jesus said and did. And C.S. Lewis... I'm not sure he originated this argument, but he certainly is the one who popularized it. You know, he either was crazy 
because of the things he said, or he was a great liar because of some of the things he said, or he was exactly who he said he was, the Lord Jesus Christ, not just Jesus of Nazareth. He was the Lord. Lord, liar, or lunatic is how that argument has, has come to be known. And so these historical societies, big, big time air quotes there, uh, they get around that. by They'll recognize, well, if Jesus really did say this, then he either was Lord, liar, or lunatic. So let's just, here's, here's a novel approach. Let's just say he didn't say these things. That way we don't have to deal with the lunacy or the lying. So anyway, uh, some people will say we, we can love Jesus, we can follow Jesus, we can learn, learn from Jesus, imitate, emulate Jesus, but we don't have to worship him. We don't have to believe he, uh, in the resurrection. And on the other end of the spectrum, of course, is the Apostle Paul who writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 17, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. I'd say Paul put a pretty strong emphasis on the resurrection, didn't he? And we're going to look at that verse again in a broader context toward the end of this message. But notice for now that Paul, who absolutely wrote extensively about the joy of living now as a Christian, walking in the fruit of the Spirit, and who talked, uh, who wrote extensively about how we should live, you know, Christian behavior, he states very explicitly here that apart from the resurrection of Christ, Christianity is worthless. Now, it is amazing to me that with all of the emphasis, uh, especially in the epistles, uh, uh, the emphasis on the crucifixion and resurrection, that people still cling to this idea that we can worship Jesus or honor Jesus without embracing that. But again, back to that later, I want to look at some of the evidence for the resurrection. Now, uh, this is following a line of reasoning that has been made famous mostly by uh, William Lane Craig, as well as J.P. Moreland and some others. He's the one who uh, codified it in, in a way that, that, uh, that Strobel and some others have been able to build on. And uh, these are, there are three truths, and these are important because these truths are widely accepted even by the critics. Got to understand that going into this. Three things we're going to look at that even those who argue against the resurrection will generally agree with. In other words, we know this is true, we just have a different explanation for it. Uh, first one is this. I'll, I'll read the three and then I'll, I'll, we'll do a little bit of an explanation on all three of them. The first one is this. The tomb in which Jesus was buried was discovered empty by a group of women on the Sunday following the crucifixion. So number one is the empty tomb. Number two, Jesus' disciples had real experiences with one whom they believed was the risen Christ. And three, as a result of the preaching of these disciples, which had the resurrection at its center, the Christian church was established and grew. So you've got the empty tomb, you've got the encounter between the disciples and who they believed was the risen Christ, and then you've got the establishment and growth of the church as a result of their preaching. Now the empty tomb. Right off the bat, I want you to notice, where did the disciples, when they started preaching? Day of Pentecost, right? 
Where were they? What city? Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? When Jesus told them to go and preach the gospel, he told them uh, not many days hence they'd be baptized in the Holy Spirit, they would receive power to be his witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then the uttermost parts of the world. They started preaching right there in Jerusalem. Uh, and if they were going to start a religion based on the resurrection of Jesus, it would have been a good idea to start it someplace far away from Jerusalem. Why? Because Jesus was buried in Jerusalem. It would have been very easy to stop Christianity in its tracks. I can't remember who the guy was, the writer, who said that Christianity wouldn't have survived the first hour except for the empty tomb because they started preaching in Jerusalem and it would have been an easy thing to go back there and produce the body if the tomb weren't empty. One of the reasons that many, practically everybody believes there was an empty tomb. They don't agree that the empty tomb means Jesus rose, but they do agree the tomb was empty would have been smarter to start somewhere other than Jerusalem, somewhere where somebody would have had to make an effort to get to Jerusalem to find something out. Uh, even the Jews at that time who argued against the resurrection clearly admit the tomb was empty. In Matthew chapter 28, uh, and we'll start with the passage that we read last week, that's verses 9, through 10, 9 and 10, and then we'll read on through verse 15. So Matthew 28, verse 9 and as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Now again, this is evidence of the empty tomb from a hostile, hostile source. They did not want, these Jewish leaders did not want to discover an empty tomb. And who reported it to them? soldiers who were guarding the tomb. Now this is important. They bribed him. They said, look, we're going to give you this money. When somebody asks you about the empty tomb, you say the disciples came and stole his body. The problem with that was, now I don't have the absolute facts on this, but it's widely believed, uh, and I believe it's true, that there was a huge penalty for these soldiers if they fell asleep on guard duty. They were assigned to guard this tomb because somebody heard somewhere that Jesus said he would rise in three days. So they wanted to make sure this wasn't get, they wanted to make sure uh, that nobody could get in there and, and uh, make it look like that's what happened. So to admit, well, where's the body? Well, we fell asleep, and while we slept, they stole his body. Well, number one, if it happened while you slept, how do you know they stole it? You had to be awake to witness that. Number two, it would have been a huge risk to admit that you fell asleep on guard duty. I mean, I've heard horrible things like they were uh, burned alive in their armor or things like that. Um, but the thing is, they address that in here. If it starts to look like you're going to get in trouble, we will be your security. We will vouch for you. We'll keep you out of trouble if you will just take this bribe and tell people that they stole the body. The whole point of this, we'll, we'll, we'll dig deeper into the, 
the problem with that a little bit later. The whole point is, they weren't arguing that the tomb wasn't empty. They were just saying, all right, look, you say it's empty, we agree it's empty, let's make up a reason why it's empty that doesn't involve the resurrection. Hostile source. Next, consider the specifics of the burial of Jesus. The gospel writers, if they decided to commit fraud in order to establish this legend of the resurrection, they surely wouldn't have been as specific as they were regarding where he was buried. We know where he was buried. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the Sanhedrin. This was a member of the ruling class, kind of the Supreme Court of Jewish society. They knew who this guy was, and they knew he was buried in that specific tomb. And so it became very easy to disprove if the tomb wasn't, in fact, empty. And I'm leaving some stuff out here because we still have two more truths to explore. But, uh, for example, there's something called the Gospel of Peter. Everybody, practically everybody knows it's a forgery from like A.D. 125. But it describes the resurrection. It says there was a crowd of people that had gathered to witness it. And when the tomb opened, three men came out and their heads were up in the clouds. And then a cross, a talking cross, came out of the tomb. This, this is the kind of thing that you would expect in a legend. You know, the mythology of the resurrection. But the gospel accounts are much more matter-of-fact, much more straightforward. They don't include goofy stuff like that. The next significant thing about the empty tomb is that it was discovered by women. It is an ugly truth, but the testimony of women in Jewish society at that time was considered all but worthless. So again... Number one, it's wonderful that God chose to elevate women. Uh, he arranged it so that women would be elevated in the gospel account, and it's one more piece of ev evidence that this thing was not made up, because again, if you were trying to concoct a story about the discovery of the empty tomb, at that point in history, you would almost certainly write it so that men discovered it, since again, women's testimony was worthless at best. <laughs> the next thing, the next truth is that the disciples had experiences with one they believed was the risen Lord. Of course, the gospel tells of encounters that the disciples had with him after the resurrection. We have the road to Emmaus, right? Uh, doubting Thomas and the brief conversation he had, uh, and uh, breakfast on the shore, many, many other examples of that. But Paul, years later, writes something that was clearly already widespread, wide, widely accepted as a creed. If you'll look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, beginning in verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. Twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. Now again, this by itself doesn't prove that Jesus rose from the dead, but it certainly seems to prove that the disciples believed he had risen from the dead. And this, I think, is the single most effective case for the resurrection because listen the disciples were in a position to know whether or not he had been raised 
History and tradition tell us that all the disciples, except for John, died martyrs' deaths, crucified upside down. Other horrible ways to die that I'm not going to go into detail about right now, but you can look look these up. Now, you can argue, this is a super important distinction, so pay attention. Other religions have their martyrs too. There's no shortage of examples of people who have gone to their death uh, believing things. I mean, just think about the, the, the Muslims who flew the planes into the towers on 9-11. Did they believe that they were doing God's will? I think they did believe that. They were willing to die for their faith too. Here's the thing though. It is certainly possible to believe something so strongly and so completely that you are willing to die for it and still be wrong. Same with the disciples. The difference is, if the disciples stole the body, that doesn't work, does it? They could be committed to starting a new religion, they could be sneaky, they could steal the body and they can get out and preach it, but are they going to die for something they know to be a lie? They believe that the empty tomb was empty because Christ had risen. Why did they believe that? Because they met the risen Lord. Again, you can be wrong about a belief and still believe it with all your heart. But if you're the one making up the story, you are not going to go to your death defending that. They went to their deaths knowing that Jesus had risen, not merely believing it. This is so crucial that there have been efforts to explain it away. Uh, they were lying. We've already addressed that. If they, knew, if they were lying, then they knew they were lying. Uh, but what if they were hallucinating? This is the second most popular uh, argument. Uh, first one is that the disciples stole the body. But if they stole the body, that means they knew they were lying about everything else, wouldn't have gone to their deaths for it. The second one is, well, they wanted this to be true so bad that they actually hallucinated and believed they saw something and experienced something they didn't experience. Uh, There's a couple of problems with that, and they're they're pretty obvious ones. Number one, they never really understood what Jesus was talking about when he said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of men, I'm going to be crucified, and three days later I'm going to rise from the dead. Remember every time he said that, the disciples would kind of go, uh, okay, so when you come into your kingdom... Can I sit on one side and, and, and this guy on the other? Uh, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It's like that. All, that's a, it's kind of like, I don't know what he's talking about. Because if he's the Messiah, when he says crucified, it must be code for something else. It just, it, their, their eyes were blinded. They just could not understand. Jesus spoke it, prophesied it at least three times to the disciples what was going to happen to him. He was going to be crucified. He was going to die, and he was going to rise from the dead. And they were just like, okay. So when he died, they weren't like sitting on pins and needles thinking, oh, wow, three more days to find out if this is true. They were just lost. He died. I can't believe he died. If they, were, if they, if they understood his claim, and I don't know, it's a mystery to me. It sounds crazy. Why wouldn't they be waiting? It's three days. Let's go out there as early as we can on Sunday and wait and watch. But they didn't. The ladies who went and and encountered Jesus, who discovered the empty tomb, they weren't going there to see if he had risen. What were they going for? To tend to the body. Remember? Angel had to tell him, I know what you're here for, but he's not here. He's risen. Now go tell his disciples. 
So it wasn't a matter of they wanted it so bad to be true that they just believed they saw it. They were beyond that kind of hope until Jesus appeared to them. But more to the point about hallucinations, what? They all had the same hallucination? What kind of sense? That'd be like me coming to you, hey, hey, wasn't that a cool dream I had last night? You don't know what I'm talking about. We're not going to dream the same dream. But if they all wanted it to be true so badly, maybe they could have had some sort of mass hallucination. But again, crazy as it sounds, they had no specific hope. They were just crushed that he was dead. Plus, how then do you, do you explain Paul's conversion years later? He didn't want it to be true, did he? He was breathing threats and murder against the Christians uh, on, the, on the road to Damascus. He wasn't sitting there, oh, I wish all this Christian stuff were true. It's the last thing he wanted. And of course, we've already established that the tomb was indeed empty. And how does a hallucination account for that? Finally, the, final, the third truth, the establishment of the church, the origin of the Christian faith. Listen, first of all, let me tell you this. Don't buy any of this nonsense. Many of you probably have heard it suggested or even categorically claimed that Christianity borrows a lot of its ideas, especially about death and resurrection from the myth and the legend of uh, Osiris and some of these others. Has anybody heard these claims? Uh, nobody? Good, never mind then. If you ever come across them, don't buy it. Believe me, uh, when they talk about borrowing elements from these other uh, mythologies and these pagan myths and influences, if you look into it, just do some, it doesn't take much. Just do a little bit of research and you will find that you really have to tweak these pagan myths to make them look like the resurrection. Somebody can say something and in the broadest terms, there might be a similarity. But if you look at the specifics, the claims of these other legends are nothing like the Christian account, the gospel account of the resurrection. And also, the Jews, some of them, certainly, believed in the resurrection, but those who believed in the resurrection did not believe in individual moments of resurrection. They believed in the general resurrection at the end of time. Uh, the resurrection preached by the disciples was a new thing. It was not Jewish in origin, and it was not pagan. And when it was preached and believed, it resulted in such potent change in the life of the believer that society itself was transformed, and the church grew. Acts 17, 6, very familiar passage where it says, but that when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the whole world, who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Believing in Christ transformed not just individual lives, but the world. The only thing, the only thing that can account for such rapid growth of the church such a deep effect on society, and the staying power of Christianity, 2,000 years and counting, is the fact of the resurrection. Now let's shift gears here for a little bit and look at ourselves, what the resurrection means to us today. I mean, what it means to us other than the fact that Christianity is true in a general sense. Back to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to get back to this verse we read at the beginning. We're going to read it in context now. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, 
how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. You see, what Paul's writing about here is our resurrection. He was essentially pointing out, and this is weird. Uh, this is, now remember, this is Corinth. We know some things about Corinth. They, they, were, they were a pretty carnal bunch. They were, they were quite the carnal bunch. But one thing they didn't lack, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, is, is uh, spiritual gifts. Right? There were a lot of the spiritual gifts in operation to such a degree, in fact, that Paul had to write some of what he wrote in chapters 12, 13, and 14 to kind of balance these things and rein it in a little bit. didn't say to stop doing it. He says, you're getting some stuff out of order. You're putting too much emphasis on tongues. You have too many people standing up uh, sharing tongues. And if you're going to do that, you better have an interpreter. Why don't you just prophesy in the first place? And, and by the way, why don't you limit it to two or three? Because there's other things you need to be doing when you're together. So they didn't lack that, and they were enjoying the life of the Spirit. They saw some benefit in Christianity, in believing these things. And apparently, they believed that Christ had risen from the dead, but they didn't believe that they would be. And Paul's saying, you can't have it both ways. If there's no such thing as resurrection, then Christ himself has not been raised. But if Christ has been raised, then there is such a thing as resurrection. And if he's been raised, that means we are going to be raised because we are in him. If we are in Christ, he's raised from the dead, then we are to be raised from the dead. The only way to get, and, and why they would argue against their own resurrection, I don't know. But the only way to get out of being resurrected is to basically say there's no such thing as resurrection. That means Christ wasn't raised. And Paul's whole point is, look, much as you can enjoy this Christianity now, Believe me, if now is all it's about, we're, we're, we're a mess. We're miserable. We're the most pitiable people on earth if, if, if only in this life we have hope in Christ. It is all about his resurrection and our resurrection. Even so, in Christ, all shall be made alive. In Christ. See, he was essentially pointing out that the... Well, let me skip this part. Paul really is exhibit a when it comes to the transformed life and i don't say that to the denigration of anyone else in history certainly not to the first disciples i mean think about peter you know he denied christ and he's covered in shame after this and then he's the one who stands up on the day of pentecost and thousands come to the lord and are baptized the very first sermon but paul's conversion was different as an apostle you know the other apostles they knew jesus they listened to his teaching they followed him they worked alongside him then they saw him crucified. Then they saw him resurrected. Paul met the crucified, uh, sorry, the resurrected Christ and then became acquainted with his sufferings and his death. 
He, went, he came through it from the opposite direction. And this is super important to you and me because we can't say that just because we didn't experience what the disciples like Peter and James and John and Thomas and the others, you know, it would certainly be something, wouldn't it? You look at these men who were willing to go to their death, well, why wouldn't they? They knew Jesus. And they worked with him and traveled with him and lived with him, did life with him for three years. And they saw him die, and then they saw him risen. And we think, well, if we had known Jesus before the crucifixion and right after the resurrection, my Christian life would be dynamic if I had a salvation experience like that. But we meet, in fact, the same resurrected Christ that Paul met. We are meeting Christ post-resurrection. And yes, Paul certainly had a dramatic encounter. <laughs> All right? I remain convinced that there were people praying for Paul. Praying for him regularly and passionately. Maybe even selfishly. <laughs> Don't let that Paul come get me. All right? Save him, Lord, before he gets to my town. Uh, I've shared with many of you before, uh, this is from Brother Matt Gober's testimony. This is the guy, uh, founder of Canaan Land Ministries, where I went to work a couple years after Rama. And uh, this guy was a hellion. I mean, he came back from Vietnam, and he's, he's living like a hell's angel. He wasn't a hell's angel, but he was a one percenter. He's running drugs coast to coast on his motorcycle. He's getting in fights. Uh, just a filthy filthy individual and uh he came he's got a number of interesting things that happened to him encounters with christians one time a lady came to his door to hand him a track and he punched her in the face knocked her right off his porch and uh said one night he came home walked into his apartment and was nearly blinded by these bright flames in his apartment it was a spiritual vision his house wasn't really on fire and in the middle of all that a bright shining cross with Jesus hanging on it saying, Mac, I love you and I did this for you. This wasn't a man who was seeking truth. This was a man who had a Damascus Road experience in his apartment. Fell to his knees and gave his life to Christ in that moment and then later went out to visit his, uh, his grandfather. His grandfather had died and his grandmother showed him, said, this is the room. Your, fa- your grandfather was bedfast for the last however many years of his life. He wasn't even able to go to church, but every Sunday after church, men from the church would come over here, help him out of bed so he could kneel before his bed. He wanted to be in a praying posture, and he would cry out to God to save his grandson who was living in sin. I think that's the kind of prayer that results in dramatic conversions, even when somebody is not seeking the truth. I believe somebody was praying for Paul. We meet that same resurrected Christ. How dynamic should my life be if my introduction to Christ was undramatic? If I, even though, yeah, I'm meeting the same post, post-resurrection Jesus, I didn't have an encounter like that. I didn't walk into a home and, and have an open vision of Christ on the cross. How dynamic should my life, my Christian life be? I want you to think about this. It's a, it's a weak example, and I'll tell you why, but I still think it's helpful. You have two people. Let's say they both have a heart to do good. They want to live well, and they want to do good things for their friends, for their, for their uh, community, for society, for the world at large. And they both realize that money is an incredibly useful tool for doing the things that, that is on their heart. 
even that God has put on their heart. Now, the first guy has a strong grasp of business, of economics, of investments, etc., and he's got some great guidance because of his family, because of some learning opportunities and experience opportunities, and he works hard, and he saves diligently, he invests wisely, and uh, by the time he's 30, he has accumulated a fortune of $100 million. Be a good place to be, wouldn't it? But he did this through a process. Second guy, he lacks the talent. He still has the passion, but he lacks the talent. Uh, doesn't have the same guidance. Didn't have the same opportunities. But he happens to win the lottery at age 30. Or he comes into an inheritance and suddenly finds himself with $100 million. Now that second case is much more dramatic, isn't it? When you go from essentially nothing to $100 million overnight, Boom! But the guy, the first guy, has $100 million at age 30. The second guy has $100 million at age 30. One was more dramatic, but they both have the exact same power, the exact same ability now to fulfill the dreams and visions that God has put on their heart. Now, the reason it's a weak example is because, as we've pointed out, you don't become a Christian over time. All right, that happens in a moment. But all I'm saying is that if you came to Christ through a process of conversations and thinking and praying and reading and studying and arguing and considering, you still come to the same Christ that knocked Paul down and blinded him on the road to Damascus. You are still encountering resurrection power. Jesus told us some things that would happen in our lives in ministry, didn't he? These signs shall follow those who have a Damascus Road experience. In my name, they will cast out demons. He didn't say that, did he? These signs shall follow those who believe. Believe. If you have believed the gospel, you have had an encounter with the resurrected Christ that is no less effective, no less empowering than the encounter that Paul had with the, with the resurrected Christ. In the case of Paul or Matt Gober, they were so anti-Jesus before their, their encounter that they probably needed a dramatic encounter to get them to the point of conversion. Praise and worship team, you can be making your way up here. And again, I believe that the only thing that can bring about an encounter like that uh, the only thing that can explain that is the power of prayer. And meanwhile, let's you and I remember that when we got saved, we didn't just decide to live a certain way because it's good for us or to live a certain way because it's good for society. Let's even look beyond the fact that we have an eternal home in heaven reserved for us. Let's cling to the truth that the same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. Where we are, the power of God is present to save, to heal, and to deliver. Stand up with me. You do not need to be able, you don't need to, when you share your testimony with somebody that you desire to be brought to the Lord, you don't need to embellish it. 
You certainly don't need to lie. You don't need to make anything up. What happened to you, no matter how undramatic that moment might seem to you in retrospect, what happened to you is you had an encounter with the living, resurrected Christ. And you need to remember that. And that when he came to dwell on the, on the inside of you through his Holy Spirit, that is the same power that raised him from the dead, the same power that knocked Paul down, the same power that did every miracle that Jesus did, that Paul did, that the disciples did, that Jesus said we would do. That same power dwells in us. Don't be shy about testifying it. Tell your, share your testimony and tell them who you know. It's not about how you came to know him. Let me tell you about Jesus, the risen Son of God, who has promised that he's going to raise me up with him. Is there anybody in here today? You think, wow, uh, I've believed a lot of things about Jesus all my life. I do believe he's a great teacher, and I do want to be like him, but I can't tell you I've honestly had an encounter with the risen Christ. That's what I need. I desire this life-saving, life-changing, life-empowering encounter with Christ Jesus. I am ready to commit my life to him. And actually, when you do that, what you're really doing is simply acknowledging the fact that he's already paid for you. There's nothing you have to do except look when Jesus said it is finished, he means it's paid for. It's yours for the asking, but you've got to ask. Do you desire to be saved today? Anybody just by the raising of your hand saying, I will be a Christian today. I will follow Jesus. I believe in the resurrection. Praise the Lord. I believe we have a room full of saved people today. Born again believers, amen? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for raising Jesus Christ from the dead, and thank you for raising us up with him. Thank you for placing us in Christ so that we can be assured of our own resurrection. And meanwhile, Father, don't let us just rest and look forward to heaven. Let us be keenly aware that you have come to indwell us, not just for ultimate rescue, but also to fill us with life-changing, life-saving, resurrection power to do the things you've called us to do. Help us to walk in that power manifestly, not just for our own blessing and our own protection, our own healing, but to be vessels, to be used in delivering that life-changing testimony to the world that we are in for now. Help us to love people like you love them so that we can share, share our testimony boldly and often. And we pray for those souls that, we, that you bring across our paths, that you would even now begin to prepare them, prepare their hearts, open their ears to hear the testimony that you speak through us. In Jesus' name, praise the Lord. God loves you. He loves you. He wants to do great things for you. He wants to heal your knee, your back, your neck, your insides, and your outsides. He wants to deliver you. He wants to empower you. But you know what? He wants to use you. 
He wants to minister not He wants to minister to you. Why? Because He loves you. But He wants to minister through you. Why? Because He loves me and because He loves the world. The gospel is powerful and its power is rooted and anchored in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You can be seated. Uh, we prepare to continue to worship the Lord with our giving. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.